and happy new year to everybody. But, you know, I need to give the people that have been listening three hours slightly more emphaticness to reward them. I hope you understand. Anyway, uh, stay tuned for Living Writers. The fun never stops here on WCBN. It never, ever stops. Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, I'm so glad to have Tom Bissell here in the studio. Tom, welcome. I'm delighted to be here. It's, it was such a wonderful musical intro. Isn't it great? Picked by Greg. Thanks for engineering, Greg. Picking the tunes. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> Tom gave um, Greg some parameters. It was. Uh, do you remember the exact sort of continuum so my two favorite kinds of music are thrash metal and bluegrass music and I, the only thing they have in common is that they're it's both incredibly technically proficient music that's played by people whose opinions on most matters are probably moronic so you know you know it's like this incredibly technically accomplished music played by people who don't typically come from the higher echelons of society and i don't know if there's anything to that or what it says about me but i just like fast complicated music and you love it i love it you yeah. love it and then greg's got got some picks ahead that that were definitely met with your approval they that were was, they, um, they got the stamp from me <laughs> so tom bissell is here i should say we're taping this show september 26 uh 2013 uh the books on the table um the latest uh the disaster artist my life inside the room the greatest bad movie ever made um tom bissell and greg sestero um we also have extra lives why video games matter and Tom Bissell's story collection, God Lives in St. Petersburg. And you've got these so many other great projects, too. When I was um, learning about you, Tom, I was wishing we we had the speak commentary. <laughs> the, the fake DVD, sort of. The, 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 the uh, amazingly quickly established and quickly collapsed genre of the fake DVD commentary, uh, which my friend Jeff and I uh, made. It's a collection of um, political pundits doing lost DVD commentaries to movies. Uh, so Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn on Fellowship of the Ring, in which they conclude that the war is just being fought over pipeweed, that the ring is just a huge distraction from, 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 uh, from the, the lucrative pipeweed trade that, that really keeps Middle Earth together. <laughs> Ann Coulter and Dinesh D'Souza do Aliens. 
in which uh, they get into an argument over the ethical dilemma of do you abort uh, an alien that's in your chest or do you allow it to be burst out of your chest and then kill it? <laughs> those, are, those are the two questions. <laughs> this is deep stuff. This is important stuff. That, that, that really <laughs> occupies me. How did you and Jeff decide to do this? And is there also an audio like companion piece to this? No, or is it purely on the page? It's purely text. Okay. Um, I don't know. We were... <laughs> This is in my 20s. I think I'm allowed to mention this. We were just smoking lots of marijuana, watching movies, and we were big mystery science theater fans. And so uh, we just whipped out a tape recorder. And I was taking acting lessons at the time, so I was really into like improv and doing stuff like that. And so he and I just started being these people and then made transcripts and then wrote them out. And it was a book that McSweeney's did in 2003. I, I think it's probably sold about eight copies. But every time I meet there's someone... Gonna from, a, a, a there's going to be a ground spot. run on it yeah, right yeah. now. I think it's out of print, but it's all right. <laughs> Come on, Dave Eggers, bring it back. I wanted to do a sequel, which had my favorite title of all time, which was, here's the title, Speak Commentary 2, colon, Return to Speak Commentary. But amazingly, no one went for it. I mean, you, you, the look of shock on your face right now is amazing. No, I'm enjoying it. I'm trying to laugh <laughs> off the mic. Yeah. I'd read that. I know. Who wouldn't read that? <laughs> no. Jeff would read that. Jeff You've got would... two readers. Greg might. Greg's being convinced. He's nodding. He's not. So when you were taking acting lessons, is this when you sort of began the the project with the disaster no, artist? No, no, is that, that at all years related? And years and years and yeah, completely unrelated. Years and years ago. It is maybe it just the no seeds were sown then. Yeah. No. No. No, no. seeds were sown then. Let's read your short bio before we go further sure. <laughs> with our with our side commentaries. That's what we could do the whole show. We could just. Have these tangents and commentaries. I'd be, I'd be down for that. Can you do voices? Can you? <clears throat> Not really. I can do Krusty the Clown, but that's about it. You really want me to do Krusty the Clown? I think everybody does. It's going to be really loud. People are turning up their radios right um, now. Okay, it's going to be really loud. <laughs> Greg is adjusting the volume. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Tom <clears throat> is warming up. Krusty the Clown. Are you ready, everyone? Someday my children will ask me where I was and what I was doing when the United States elected its first black president. That's the first line of Extra Lives. So, uh, <laughs> that is my trusty plan. Hey, that was beautiful. Thank and you. is that a living writer's sort of scoop there? Because <laughs> I saw you on YouTube reading at the Harvard Bookstore and you did not do that. I didn't. I, I only do that for my friends. <laughs> Go, oh. It's pretty good, right? <laughs> it was awesome. It's a pretty good crusty. I feel like now it feels like even friendlier around yeah, here. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, you're welcome. Go blue. Take that, Harvard. Um, all right. Now, before really we go, <laughs> sort of, okay. Well, actually, and um, go Michigan State. Yeah, that's right. Really? Yeah. 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 So I didn't mean to oh, please, I, do the blue I was thing. just saying to someone, someone, you know, the rivalry is something that Michigan State likes to imagine it has, but it's like a... A donkey does not really rival a stallion, you know, and I think in terms of... I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> no, it's true. I we mean, don't we, edit these shows. It's true. Like, you know, Michigan State is a fine school, but in terms of, like, global perception, mm. I think they're very different places. So, uh, yeah. Know. Yeah. Each of the... Yeah. I love Michigan State, but... Yeah, let's not let's not kid ourselves. This rivalry is, is it's a one way. <laughs> I think it's felt mostly on the Michigan State side, not on the U of M side. I'm just being a realist here. And that's going to come up and up in this show, like this okay. idea of like you being a realist, right? Yeah, I guess I think so. so. I think so yeah. Okay, well maybe. Or and we got to talk about Loch Ness. We got to right. talk about uh, Nessie I, too. I will talk about Nessie, which for I the know entire hour. <laughs> 
if you want. I have a lot to say about this. But go on. Okay. Finally, to the short bio, yes. right? Yes. And then we'll, then we'll work Nessie in there. Tom Bissell was born in Escanaba, Michigan in 1974. He is the author of several books, including The Father of All Things and Extra Lives, and his work has been awarded the Rome Prize and a Guggenheim Fellowship. More recently, he co-wrote the script for Gears of War, Judgment. He lives in Los Angeles. I can see like you're really into colons now. Like that's why the return of speak commentary. Yeah, I, I like colons. Colons are good. It's always something good after a colon. You know, you're you know you're getting something important. That's right. Pay attention. <laughs> Pay attention. It's a colon. <laughs> it's a colon. Here it comes. Um, even uh, even with extra lives, great title, right? And then. Yeah, whenever I see a book that has a non-colonic title, when it's just the naked title sitting up there, it's sort of disdainful. A I'm little just like, bit. what are you doing? Where is the colon? How do you know what the hell this thing's about? Which leads me to God lives in St. Petersburg. Well, I guess maybe fiction is that a different. Do you feel like that's a different beast then? Well, short story collection, the subtitle. Oh, it's like an implied colon. You know, God lives in St. Petersburg. Implied colon. And 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 other stories. <laughs> that would be funny if you ever put that on a cover, actually. And this one's for your mom. God lives in St. Petersburg. Oh, the dedication? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I dedicated to my mom. And Emily Dickinson leads it off, right? You have an epigram? An epigraph from Emily Dickinson. But yeah. Why, why'd you choose Emily? I love Emily Dickinson. Was there ever a better poet than Emily Dickinson? I don't think so. No, me neither. I don't think so. If we, This is living writers, but if we ever did dead writers or formerly living writers return i'd like to channel emily <laughs> yeah we'd well, have to get her out of her bedroom first and i think that would be probably pretty hard she, she could skype in <laughs> she, she could we have the technology God, can you imagine if emily dickinson were alive now she would be on snapchat she would be because she did that she wrote letters constantly oh, right. to people oh my god she'd be like on vine she'd be tweeting that's amazing she would she was desperate for contact but she didn't have any avenue to do it except for old-fashioned boring letters <laughs> Letters now that's an art as well. Yeah, of course. But now she but so slow. And sometimes letters only to the neighbor. Strange. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was she was a weirdo. And wonderful. I mean there are yeah, a few great A weirdos in American literature. Well, there's a lot of them actually, but she is the queen of the weirdos. She never met like the person she had the most intense relationship with, which was uh the editor of her Lavinia. Um They didn't meet. No, well, no, Lavinia was her sister. Vinny was her sister. Who was the woman? Was it Susan? It was her brother's wife. Life. Yes. Yeah. And she, they never met. They left notes for each other on the stairs, but they, and, and Susan would play piano for Emily downstairs, but they, didn't they never met. I can't believe that. Tom, we're going to have to check that out. I know, I know that you also are very clear with your facts, so I don't mean to... Well, according to, you according to, you know, the, the biography I've read of her, they never physically met, which I, like you, I... I can't believe. And their windows. I mean, because you've been to the house. It's not that hard to walk upstairs. Think, yeah. It's it's <laughs> right, pretty right. easy, in and fact. And the houses are not that far apart. No. There's, I, yeah. Even if they had built like a huge one of those English garden sort of mazes between the houses, you could still get there. Yeah. I just don't. At what point do you just not like, hi, Emily, could you, I'd really <laughs> like to say hello. Um, I don't know, but it's weird. I feel like things I know were different you. then. When, Think, things yeah. were different then. <laughs> um, where do we go from here, Tom? Where do we? Well, let's actually let's go back to your Michigan connections, mm -hmm. Escanaba. Yes, and you are comfortable sitting here in the radio station because you did some high school radio when you were. I was a board a operator. A board operator. A board operator. Meaning so after six p.m. <laughs> Boa. Yes, I was also a board board operator, but. 
it was great. It was a great job for me. I did it all through high school and through most of college when I was home for the summer because I would just sit there and read books. I just read books, 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 books. I'd read like two books a night sometimes because I worked from 11 to 7 on Saturday and Sunday. And you had to stay awake. And I had to stay awake. So I would just sit there and read. And um, so they, they, so you'd listen to the tapes that the, the DJ, the active DJ on that night would would record, you know, just a run of stuff. And he'd mention the time. So you had to play him at the, at the right time. So it was the illusion that someone was actually oh, there. Oh, so the DJ wasn't there. No, it was, I was oh. there. Board operator was there. Kid making minimum wage. And so I worked that job for, God, how many years? Six, seven years. And so I knew my way around a board pretty well at one point. And that's um, a lot of responsibility then. You're the only one at the station yeah, the only over, one overnight. Yeah. And then, huh. So if there, was there ever an emergency or something that happened where people came in and they were like, Tom, you need to announce this on the radio or mm. people need to know this or? No. No, okay. No, that es- would be a good story. Though. I think in Escanaba the most... Well, I mean, no one goes. No one was going to a top forty radio station for their for their breaking <laughs> news, you know. And we did ABC News like well, every three hours or something. But you know, I was never there during a national emergency. Certainly, and then I'd just switch over to the ABC station if if there was if there was, and yeah. then and broadcast that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was doing War of the Worlds up there. <laughs> right. The aliens are coming down. <laughs> they seem for now. No. <laughs> I knew there had you had more voices in there. I knew you did. No, I could do a '30s reporter really well. Um, I love doing thirties reporter voice. <laughs> and were you? Are you still doing acting? Like, is no, that something no, 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 that's no, no, like? No. A, My girlfriend is an actor. Is one thing that keeps me and in, heavily involved in that. She's a classical uh, repertory actor, so she does stage stuff all over. Ah, and and, so, and is that why you're based in L.A. now? Yeah, yeah. Okay, because you've lived in a lot of different lived places. In a lot of places. Yeah. Uzbekistan, yep. New York City, yep. Portland, Portland, Oregon. Where you were teaching for a while. Yep. Estonia, Las Vegas, Rome, Saigon, Vietnam. Um, I've lived all over the place. And in those places, like quite a few months, Tom? Or yeah, when, yeah. So when you're saying all lived the, in yeah, the places, these are, these are it's long like, term, yeah. 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 All right. Well, we've got lots to, we're going we're gonna to take a short break and we'll be right back um, to hear about how all these places come together in all your writings. Or don't. <laughs> you've got living writers today on the program. Tom Bissell is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Greg Engineering. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Tom Bissell is here. Um, Tom, give us give us the name of the song. <laughs> that was Creeping Death by Metallica off Ride the Lightning. Um, Where does that bring you? That brings me back to seventh grade. This, uh, Ride the Lightning was the first compact disc I ever bought. The it first? Was, yeah, the first. And that music seemed like devil spawn to my, to my parents. They were like, what on earth? is this noise <laughs> and uh it's still a pretty thrashy album um mm. 
Um, but I really, I, I love early Metallica. Metallica's first four albums, I think, are the best, best thrash metal that I, that I, I just love it. I think it's great. And did you get to see them? Like, did they? Yeah, I saw them. The first concert I ever saw was they came through Milwaukee, and um, oh, so, and you drove? So yeah, yeah, I drove, drove, okay. drove down. Um, and I, I realized early on that I'm not a concert goer. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't like that whole scene, man. It's just too many people, and it's just you can't hear the music, and it's just, it's just crap. So. Uh, but that was the first first concert I ever saw. Yeah. So Metallica was 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 big for me when I was a kid. Look, you know, they were bleeding edge culturally in you know, the Upper Peninsula in 1988. You know, they they were uh, that was that was as close to the outside world as I could imagine. So, were were you sort of isolated up there? I mean, that seems to imply it's a very isolating place. It really is. Um, it still is in some to some extent. There's just the only chains they get up there are really like the fast food places and some of the big department store type places but like there's no starbucks there's no gap any of the kinds of emblems of comfortable suburban living that that like shopping mall comfort places aren't up there but isn't that like a a, like such a good thing like no it's good in some ways but it's also indicative of like just the you know because these companies do income studies of counties where they want to put stores and delta county does not unfortunately meet them and so it's a good thing in the sense that it's not this crappy mass-produced American culture up there, but at the same time, it feels it's sort of outsiderish. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's you you just feel you feel a... you just feel kind of cut off from like the mainstream of whatever American culture really is. Jeez, and now you you live in L.A. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is not. I st- I love mainstream. I, I mean, it's another thing again. L.A. Yeah. is its own thing as LA well. Is its own thing, but um, you know, I I would love the UP. I go back there a lot. My girlfriend is from Escanaba. I'm from Escanaba, and so. Oh, she is. Did you guys, so you guys knew each other? We knew each other in high school, but we got together about five years ago after like not having any contact for a long time. We just instantly met, we met and we were like, oh, obviously we're supposed to be together. So. That's kind of incredible, isn't it? Is, it is. Yeah. It's weird. But huh. we both got, she's an actor. I'm a writer. You know, most people from the Upper Peninsula don't get an artistic um, occupation even in their heads. It's just, it just doesn't happen that often. So I think we both kind of have a very good relationship. We both... I think we understand each other in a way that is really important to me and her. So Yeah, especially, yeah. Because L.A., if you're not sure of some things, I can take it away from you <laughs> quick, I think. There. Well, I will say this. I'm glad I moved to L.A. When, I'm, when I was 38 and relatively established in my life because I think it is a miserable place to be a struggling, aspiring anything because it's a hard city to be young in. And uh, I really like it, but I, like I said, I you know I already had a circle of friends that I knew that lived there beforehand and... and um, it's a tough city to be a young person in. It's a much nicer city to be a newly middle-aged person in. How do you think that this, then this drive or this belief that you could be an artist, did it, how did that come to you? Was it, was it all those books that you were reading? Was it reading like Jim Harrison also who yeah. was writing about the UP? Yep. Or? Yeah. My dad is a friend of Jim Harrison's. They hunted together. Um, they hunt pheasant together and they knew each other. So I, I knew of Jim since I was a kid. And Just as like Uncle Jim. Yeah, like as, a, like as a family friend. And my dad was also good friends with a writer named Philip Caputo. And so though two of them were in my life at a very, very early stage. And I looked at, they both had what seemed to me very glamorous lives. And Phil drew, drove a very splashy car and, and they did what they wanted. And they didn't really have jobs that I could detect. Um, that was creeping death again. <laughs> Glad to see you back. Um, they, did, they didn't have jobs in any kind of traditional sense that I understood it. And um, 
I just looked at them and thought, whatever that is, whatever that thing is that they do, I want to do that too. And that thought never really left my head. Mm. It's kind of, it's, thank goodness for them. Yeah, no. I wrote a profile of Jim Harrison. We've got it here. Yeah, that was an outside, and, and that's the thing I'm really happy with, and I just loved paying the man my respects is uh, like an early mentor to me. I think it's interesting that you also say paying the, like the man because there's such a myth mm-hmm. and that Jim Harrison also likes to oh, create yeah, uh, yeah, as no, well. No, he enjoys you know? it. Yeah, yeah. No one would, no <laughs> one the, would dispute that. <laughs> when the French journalist comes to it, like comes to visit him and interview him, he'll get the shotgun out. Right. You yes, know, like yeah. he steps into it. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think I thought that was just somehow that struck me that 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 and the, even the title, the last line, it just seems like such like you have a love love for him and I a do. great respect or I, so. I, I love and, him with all my heart. Yeah. Oh, a shout out to Jim Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I love how he also he um, insists that Copper Canyon, the poetry press, mm-hmm. publishes books because he wants to make sure like he could be, you know, any any big press would publish his poems, you know, as well as like his novels and um but he wants to stay with them yep. because he believes in what their mission what they're doing yes as well so. yeah, he's a man of uh, like real integrity and loyalty and it's just i respect the i almost said a different word i respect the hell out of that and so when i was also looking a little bit at uh, your your past um tom you you were a peace corps volunteer mm-hmm. you worked and that's what took you to Uzbekistan. Mm-hmm. um how did it was that your way of also saying i'm gonna go far away like i have to find the world or or what yeah maybe that's, I, I don't mean to label no it no i mean i i was a very fearful kid um I loved the idea of going places, but actually going places made me really uncomfortable and nervous. And I never really knew why, but I, I'd get really uptight and uncomfortable. Uh, even in college, I didn't like uh, going places I wasn't familiar with. And this was the polar opposite of what I wanted to be. And it was weird. I, was, I think it's a small town Midwestern thing. A lot of people have this. I've seen it in a lot of people I know. And I had it to a pretty intense degree. And I realized the only way to get over this fear was to just incinerate it, to completely destroy it. And so joining the Peace Corps was a pretty good way to incinerate it. And I, I was a mess my first few days there. I was, I mean, I, I'd been to London with my parents when I was a freshman in high school. Beyond that, I'd traveled to Chicago, Milwaukee. That's it. Oh, right. To see Metallica. To see Metallica. But I went to Milwaukee a lot with my parents in Chicago a lot because my uncle lived there, but... Um, my travel experience was pretty much nil. Right. And in English speaking. And in English speaking. And so, yeah, you know, the first real place I traveled was Central Asia. And, and I love Central Asia, but it is not exactly the appetizer of travel. It's it's kind of a place you ideally should, should graduate to because it's an intense place. It's an intense place without a lot of reassuring touristic comforts for it's it's a place where hardcore travelers go. And again, I love it. I love it. It's great. And well, you were there teaching English. I was there teaching English. And I've been back like a zillion times since. But but um Yeah, it it's uh that was my first experience of travel and it really turned me into whatever the writer I am. And, and then I'm, is that when you did Chasing the Sea? Yes. Is that the well, which that, was a travel narrative? Yeah, I, I went back to Uzbekistan because I quit as a Peace Corps volunteer. I washed out. 
You quit. I did. I did. No way. What? Yeah. What's that even like? What is a, that? I just had a nervous breakdown. I was. I was a kid. I was really immature. I didn't handle it well. I really regret it. And someday I'm going to join the Peace Corps again. To. You know, probably a little bit later in life, but I'm gonna. I'm gonna, write that cosmic, com- karmic debt because I really feel like I walked out on a lot of people, and it still bugs me that I did that. And they have different. Um... Like as I think as you get older if with the Peace Corps and have specific skill sets, I think they have kind of pieces where you can be placed and where you're really needed for your particular skill set. Yeah. So maybe that would be. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just would like I would like to do that someday. That's all. Yeah. Well, that's that speaks well of you, Tom Bissell. Well, we'll see if I actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, time goes by so fast, doesn't it? it does. Like that's yeah. yeah I, I keep thinking. I want to go back. I, I worked for a year in Detroit um, with at an elementary school with young writers for second and third grade, and I kept I keep thinking I've got to find a project where I can go in at least for a week and yeah. do something with these kids, like so that we can put on a play or a show or yeah. something. And and I haven't done that yet either. So yeah, we'll I know. have to check in with we, each we other. We will check in. We'll, okay. we'll send each other pestering notes. <laughs> Um, well, um, well, let's let's talk for a moment about this. The disaster artist, like the the latest book that that's out, um, comes out next week. It comes out. Oh, it's not even. It's not okay. Yeah. So hot off the press, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Um, so how did this come about? And working with someone too, because yeah. not since Jeff have you worked with <laughs> someone. <laughs> so, in two thousand three, a man named Tommy Wiseau made a movie called The Room. He spent $6 million of his own money making this movie. Which is hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom. He, it was a, it was a catastrophe. It did not do well. It left the theater, but he, Tommy bribed one theater in Los Angeles to keep showing it once a month. And he kept his rather remarkable billboard up on Highland Avenue in Los Angeles for five years. And so people would drive by the billboard and look at it. They'd look at it and they'd be like, what the hell is that thing? So it's finally, so spooky. It's very spooky. It's a weird billboard. So finally someone went and saw this movie, this guy named Michael Rousselet. And he was sitting alone in the theater watching this cinematic monstrosity and just became mesmerized by it because it is a mesmerizing movie. Bad and good really don't capture what this movie is. Have you watched... So did you... Had it. you seen it at this by this point? Oh, God, or, no, no, Or no, not no. until Mark... No. Well, okay, sorry. I'll get to that. Yeah. Okay. So I, that was in about 2006. So then it became like an LA thing that people just started going to see this strange cult movie. By 2009, it was starting to get more attention, like national traction. national traction, and it premiered in Portland, Oregon, the night that I moved there, and <laughs> and so I just happened to discover it that afternoon sitting on my couch. No, I wasn't sitting on a couch. I was sitting on an air mattress in an empty apartment waiting for my girlfriend and all of our stuff to show up the next day. And I just fell into an internet hole and just started reading about it. And I was like, what the hell is this? And then just through sheer luck, just clicked on something and realized it's premiering tonight in Portland at a theater like five blocks away from my apartment. Portland is great. So I went and saw it and it blew me away. And so I called my editor at Harper's and I said, I am writing a piece about this movie. You can stop me if you'd like. Uh, I mean, you, you, cannot, you can publish it if you like, but I'm, I'm okay. writing about this, period. So uh, I wrote it. They published it. Um, and Greg, who played the character Mark in the film, got in touch with me and said, I read your piece. I loved it. Let's talk. So we went out to lunch in L.A. and 
just he started telling stories and I thought Greg was just some actor that just showed up for an audition and got a part in this movie but he'd known Tommy for years before the movie was was made they'd been friends for years and Greg just started telling stories about their friendship and I just said dude you have to write about this this is an amazing story flash forward another year we just decided to write this book ourselves and so um it's it's um it's a story of his relationship with Tommy. It's a story of the making of this film, and it's an account of what being at the center of this odd cultural phenomenon actually felt like, feels like, from his perspective. And so, when when you were working with him, was it was it more that he would be talking, telling you different pieces of the story, and you you were actually you were writing it, or were you both drafting? We structured the book chapter by chapter, and, r- and roughly covered chronologically and thematically what we wanted to cover. Greg wrote up a bunch of notes, and we, he would go over them, and I would record his reading his notes while I asked him questions, and we did that chapter by chapter. So then we just turned the chapter into transcripts, and then I turned them into prose. Greg then took those chapters that I wrote and rewrote them so they were more in line with his memories, with his voice, and then I rewrote him, and he rewrote it again, and so we just swapped back and forth until we came up with something that we were both happy with. So that was... That's a kind of... That's a cool collaboration. That yeah, was great. Then. It was great. It was really good. And now you guys are friends and it's been, it yeah. sounds like it took some time friends. to do that too. Some years to do, or how long did it take to write? About a year. Only a year. Okay. Well, we wrote the bulk of it in probably five months. It was my job for five months straight. I was, we were working on this thing 18 hours a day. It was pretty grueling because I was teaching and I just had all this stuff going on and I just couldn't work on it as much as I wanted to. And so when, when the time came to really work on it, we just worked on it and then we really, really, we knocked it out fast. Have you seen The Room recently? Yeah, I saw it just a couple weeks ago. Why? Hmm? Why? Um, a friend of mine wanted to see it. He hadn't seen it. so. And you can't, couldn't let him go alone. Couldn't let right? him go. Okay, let's take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Tom Bissell is here. We'll be right back. Keepers born to serve to the Pharaoh, heed to his every word. Live in fear, faith of the unknown one, the deliverer. Wait, something must be done. Four hundred years. So let it be written. So let it be done. I'm sent here by the chosen one. So let it be written, so let it be done, to kill the firstborn Pharaoh's son, I'm creeping dead. Now let my people go, land of Goshen, go, I will be with thee, push your fire. Sun, 
You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Tom Bissell is here. Um, Tom, you loved that last last piece of music. It was there. a bluegrass version of Creeping Death by Metallica. Who would not love that piece of music? It was amazing. Greg, thank you. <laughs> it really is a beautiful thing. It was so cheerful. It was. It is for a song that is about the personification of the Lord's plagues that visited Egypt. It was a remarkably cheerful <laughs> it was song. So ha- I feel happy. <laughs> what I love about metal songs <laughs> is that they're so literal. Like a song called Creeping Death is, is actually about <laughs> Creeping Death. <laughs> A song about Master of Puppets is about a, well, yeah. <laughs> Anthrax's song Indians is about Indians. Megadeth's song Wake Up Dead is about waking up dead. There's just this amazing literalism to metal that I just love. You can count on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad thing no, to count on. No. Um, well, let's talk about video games for a minute. Do, do you mind? No, Does no, that no. sound good? Your book, Extra Lives, uh, why video, colon, why video games <laughs> matter. Um, and we've got the, the copy that has new material too. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent indeed. I, I loved your, your chapter three title heading, the unbearable lightness of, of games. Yeah. So great. So was Kandera one of the books you were reading back in high school when oh, you God, were the I, yeah, board I read, operator? I read, I read that book. I, Did you read all Kandera? No, then? I just read the one. I just read Unbearable Lightness of Being. I think I tried to read one other one and just... No, you didn't have a Kandera period. No, I really didn't. I don't know. I like a lot of Eastern European writers and I like a lot of like, you know, um, writers who wrestled against the specter of communism especially, but yeah, he never oh. really did it for me. Right. That makes sense with your, your history yeah. as, as well. Um, yeah, communism is a... Like a lot of the, my books have sort of addressed like the Vietnam book and Chasing the Sea book. It's something I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, and I, I like also, though, how um, it seems like your your politics are pretty interesting because they don't maybe fit in a, a neat... Um, why am I saying this? Because <laughs> <laughs> because I was looking at this Wikipedia. So oh, right yeah, there, yeah, danger, yeah. danger, right? Yeah. Um, but I loved how it said his politics often do not fit within established categories of American liberalism and conservatism. And this sort of, well, look, think, now I'm doing a voice. I don't know yeah, who that was. <laughs> that's your Wikipedia voice. That was my Wikipedia. I think that comes from the fact that I've written pretty angrily about, you know, the communist destruction of the environment and um i'm a person of the left who detests communism i don't think that's the craziest you know um the craziest wackiest political uh ideology out there but um Mm -mm. no you're certainly not alone i don't i have a lot more direct experience with communism than you know most americans i've lived in two former communist countries in one actively communist country i've been menaced by the secret police in communist countries i've had friends tortured by communist regimes so yeah i mean i i think the cold war was a struggle of the bad against the worst you know and and uh so uh, that wikipedia thing is always sort of stuck in my craw if i if I ever i don't even know what that means my politics are i don't know somebody's got to go in and change it it says citation needed <laughs> Needs a little more than that. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. then, okay, I'm putting that away now, far away from Damn us. you, Wikipedia. I know. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't even brought it up. Oh, that's out of mind. But I think, I think it's interesting because I was um, 
Let's talk about the video games sure. a little bit, like entering into these these different worlds. And the, and you like there's um, you you write in Extra Lives more about the narrative games. Mm-hmm. I have to just come clean and say I'm one of those people that you're saying it's like learning a foreign language. Yeah. So mm-hmm. now I find myself thinking, oh my god, it's so different than when it was, you know, Frogger <laughs> or something like that. And the kids and they say, oh, it's just this, and then this does this, and this does this, yes. and then I I can't. I'm looking at the tool and I'm thinking yeah. I don't even really want to touch it until I have some hours alone <laughs> and no one's there to watch me get killed right away. <laughs> no, it's they're really complicated. They're really complicated, and and. Uh... It takes a long time to to figure out how to play how to play a game, especially like any game in which you have to position yourself in three dimensional space. People who don't, because one stick controls you and the other stick controls the camera, and 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 getting those two things working at the same time is like a real mind blower for people who don't who don't who don't know games well. It's hard. It's very hard. So when you're even saying the camera, that means like the vantage point of how you're going to see the space, like mm-hmm. move through the space. And then the other one is your body moving through the space. Yeah. Okay. So most games typically are third or first person. And the most common kind of action game is a th- is a close third person or a first person view. So the third person view is kind of like an over the shoulder or just slightly be- behind the back of a person. And a first person view is, of course... Um, you know, a literal first-person view where you're looking down the barrel of a gun or you're looking out of someone's eyes. And and that's very hard for people to understand because the first person is very rarely employed in film. So it's, it's, a, it's a cinematic device that, that, like, cinemas hardly ever really use and games use it, you know, repeatedly. And it's, it's, it's a tough, you know, in the grammar of film, it's a tough thing to adjust to. That the idea that the camera and you would have a different uh, well in a first person game you, your eyes are the camera but in a third person game the camera's freer it's weird it's really weird it's it, it's weird it's so weird that you know i think i forget how weird it is actually when when i'm when i'm not when i'm trying to explain it to someone i just blew my mind a little bit there but um yeah well, yeah. well i think that also it's interesting that you are a, aware of um how these are built and how unusual like you don't because i think a lot of people would just take it for granted because once you if you kind of grow up in it mm-hmm. in playing them it's like you're not even aware like you probably would have a hard time deconstructing how to be in it in any other way yeah well i like, built like, on it my boss in publishing my one of my first bosses in publishing was this wonderful man who was an older gentleman who's from the south and like he would look at a computer screen and just see an ocean of host hostile information he didn't understand that you clicked the window shut by clicking in a corner but that's such a intuitive now for us like we just look to yeah we just get it yeah but he didn't understand he's like why the corner why how do i get rid of this thing (laughs) and and then just be like um well you know you got to click the little box and then he's like there's a bunch of boxes which box are you talking about and so um and i realized that like why why the corner right why and why why And why that they, is mind blowing. Because yeah. then, why any like anything why? is up for grabs? <laughs> After Seriously. why the corner, you're just you're just hurtling into a into a hellscape of self doubt and, and existential dilemmas. So um, how did you even write this? <laughs> I don't even know at this point. Extra no. lives. I've always been interested in video games. I've always played them, and then at a certain point, I just wanted to write about them because there wasn't really a book like, quite like this. This is kind of a 
a gamer's memoir. But after I wrote the book, I started working in games more, and now it's pretty much my my job as I, I work on games for, in the writing capacity. And um, yes, yeah, it's one of your more recent articles, like True Grit, and yeah, 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 okay. Trueish Grit, Trueish yeah. Grit, yeah. yeah, that's great, a great title. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so it's really, a, I mean, making a video game is the most complicated form of entertainment you can imagine. You can't even imagine how complicated it is. I'm going to say this tomorrow in my, my speech, but I'll repeat it here. Imagine you're making a movie, but you have to build the camera. Imagine you have to build the sun that shines light. Imagine you then have to build the physics that govern the world. Imagine you have to build the actors, and in every shot that you close in on their faces, fix all the gears in their faces so that their faces work in the proper way. Imagine that you have to build all the sets before you write a word of the script. Imagine... So just imagine all those things right there. And then imagine when all these things start interacting together, everything just blows to pieces because nothing works together because they're separate, they're separate strands of programming. And then getting them all to work together seamlessly at the same time, it's magic. It is voodoo. It is so unbelievably interesting and so complicated. The being on the inside of it, I'm just always fascinated. So who are these people who are making the games then? They're um, programmers. They're artists. They're... Um, uh, concept artists, they're gameplay designers, they're level designers, they're environmental artists, they're engineers, um, the people who... And they're all collaborating on a particular game, like for example... 100 people, more than that, 120 people, all trying to create something that has a unity and, and... How does it have a unity then with all those people working? Everyone, you have to have a really good project leader who keeps everyone on point and, um, and just mans the ship in a way that allows people to express themselves and do what they do, but he has to kind of rein everyone in so that everything remains relatively thematically coherent. It's hard. It's really hard. And so now you're on the inside of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so are you part of a team that's creating mm-hmm. the nec- a next game? Yeah. yeah. And what do you do? Are you... I'm the scriptwriter. And so that's interesting because you're going to be kind of dealing with this idea because I was, well, like the, what is it? left for dead like like these different um (laughs) like where there's like the looseness where like you like i was just i'm trying to catch up here no no (laughs) this whole world so i write all the script Um, stuff framed and then there's the i write all the script stuff that like the characters are always going to say and then i have to write all the stuff that they might say and there's a bunch of scenes in the game we're working on which i can't talk about for various reasons but where characters just walk through a city and you have to populate that entire space with believable conversation all around you. That could be that they might happen to hear that where they might, they If they walk over to those people over there, they'll hear a conversation will fire when they get within a certain radius of them. And then you can sit there and it has to be long enough that it feels like... It could um, be a natural that it could, Yeah, that it could go on and then you're going to walk away. But you're writing 20 different tiny little radio plays. Half of which no one's just ever going to hear. Just for that moment. Just because every just for time one ten someone enters. Moment, someone's going to walk through the space and you have to just populate it with sound and dialogue. And the next time that, like, let's say the person plays the game the next day, when they walk into the space, the conversation would be different. No, right? no the conversation will always be the same. In but that they, particular space. In that space. particular space. But they might go choose to walk closer to a different conversation than the one that they chose to. So it's really like from a story perspective, that's fascinating. It's a story that you're sort of creating, but it, the player is really determining exposure to it. And you have to like anticipate if you have like a little favorite radio play, you want to put it in a place where most players are going to hear it, but they might not. And so it's becomes this really interesting game of arranging the chairs 
Um, so are you trying to manipulate people to go in certain directions of because course, you want them to be yeah. in different parts of the story? That that's you the love art of the level is that you want people, they call them weenies. If you've got to put a weenie in a level to get people to sort of be drawn toward a certain place without it make you feel like you're in a funnel. Right, um, right. You know, because or just like so a totally open expanse where you don't have any idea where to go, that would be a nightmare. You know, no one, uh, why would that be enjoyable? Oh, yeah. It's just like, I don't know what the hell to do. That's So you have to give incentivize people to sort of poke and prod in the places that you want, but you also have to give them the illusion that they're making the decision themselves. It's a really tricky balance. It's, it's, it's crazy. So, is so these questions, the... like, when people say, oh, you work in video games, that must be really dumb and boring. It's actually no. I was fascinating. Gonna, my question was, so is there a psychiatrist on the team or a psychologist? <laughs> that was actually my question. Well, a good game designer is kind of part analyst of human... Um, it's part analyst of, like, human tendencies and then, like, part someone who's an artist and then and then part just like a you know a sheer trickster um so yeah because you need the elements of the surprise mm -hmm. somehow always yeah for it to be a game yeah so when is it not a game um well modern video games are weird they're kind of like stories that have game-like elements and games started off as games that had story-like elements like mm -hmm. space invaders are coming these frogs need to get across that highway <laughs> But now you would tell the personal journey of the discovery that the frog has while crossing the highway and the people he meets and the things he learns, you know, so... A new ver that would be hilarious yeah, to see Frogger, Frogger like, made like, into some game that's a high in this world. Frogger. Yeah. yeah, no, it would be amazing, actually. That's a great idea. But so games have sort of tried to tell stories in a more traditional sense with various degrees of success. I'm not convinced that's really what games do all that well. Maybe they shouldn't. But it sounds like you're saying that there's more of this emotional capacity and this experiential, there's like a lot, what yeah. happens to you when you play the game. To me, I like games in which the author and the player have kind of agreed to hold hands and tell a story together, and that the author gives the player enough room to make his or her story meaningful to him, the player, him or herself, and that the author is giving the player just enough to work with narratively, but ultimately isn't dictating the meaning of the story to the player. That, to me, is interesting, and that's a very interesting way to think about story. Um, so that's kind of what I'm interested in. And that's different than what you can do... In a short story. In a short story. Well, but yeah. stories still have interpretive agency. And, and what I always told my students is that... When well, you I, get in someone's mind, aren't you? Yeah, when you allow the reader to come... Allowing your characters enough agency to behave in ways that the reader may find alarming or disturbing, but also give enough space between the reader and the story for the reader to step in and, and like, not judge these people. Oh, but, yeah. But try to, like... Not to dot every emotional T and not to dot every emotional I. I like stories that give you, the, the reader, that space of interpretive agency. And so it's with, not... To be with somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's take a short break and then we'll come back. You've got Living Writers today, Tom Bissell on the program. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You've got living writers. If you're just joining us, I'm so glad you did. Today on the program, Tom Bissell is here. Um, We've got the books on the table are The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room, The Greatest Bad Movie Ever Made, Extra Lives, colon, Why Video Games Matter, and also Tom Bissell's story collection, God Lives in St. Petersburg. Um, And now we're going to talk about the greatest mystery of of, of our time. Yes, we are, which is... The Loch Ness Monster, which I wrote a very hard-hitting piece of investigative journalism about. It's true. (laughs) We're both laughing. I also like how there's a picture of you, which was sort of non-traditional, I think, the the author in his borrowed outfit with his compatriots in this story. Yeah. So you read it. Yeah. (laughs) You're you're a, a Loch Ness Monster fan. Um, yeah, I think I can remember as a kid, mm-hmm. um, going somewhere where like they take you where like kids go on a rainy afternoon and then so you went there. <laughs> oh no. Oh, not to not. Oh, okay. oh no, I wish. Okay. No, I've only been here now to the exhibition hall with you and seen yeah. Shine's film and um, <laughs> well, you, <laughs> it feels so compelling yeah. from the, how you write about it's it. Amazing. It's amazing. dazzling. It's amazing. <laughs> Adrian Shine is a naturalist who lives on Loch Ness, who's done a fine job of curating the most rationally skeptical museum around the lock. There's a bunch that are very credulous that are very like, yes, is the monster real? But Shine believes it's not. But um, but he, he loves the lore and he loves the midgen, the legends. Yeah. I, I, I love the moment in here where there's actually um, some people who are also coming to Loch Ness to tour. And you said it was hard. Like you actually looked her in the eye to say, because she was asking each of you if you believed. And you said it's hard to... That I thought that was a really important moment somehow. You actually looked her in the eye to say, I, no, I do not believe. Yeah. But you had to like hold the gaze to... Yeah. Instead of looking down or... Yeah. Yeah. What do I have to be ashamed of? I don't believe that a prehistoric dinosaur lives in a 10,000-year-old lake. I mean, why is that so hard not to believe? <laughs> um, right. But it's something like, I think you were sort of, I don't know, recognizing some like goodness in the fact no, that totally. she believes, right? And yeah. and then what's interesting is how you tie this also to like um, uh, some it's like terrorism, like what what it takes to make other people certain types of believers too. Yeah, um, yeah. I had the great fortune to land in Scotland or land in England. The the and I was going to fly f- to Scotland from England in the morning of the liquid bomber scare in in England, which they yeah, it was just terrible. My luggage was lost for months, and and uh, I had to take a train to Scotland, and so belief was ringing in my head when I was on my way to, to Loch Ness. But I love the Loch Ness monster. I love the stories. Since you were a boy. Since I was a boy, it's such an interesting modern myth, and it really dates from the 30s. And uh, you you saw the note that like the plesiosaur version of the Loch Ness monster dates because the dude who first told that story had just seen King Kong, and there's a plesiosaur <laughs> in King Kong. It was the plesiosaur's pop culture debut. And so that's why someone then yeah. somehow imagined it in Loch Ness. Yeah, and after the plesiosaur version, then uh, uh, Dr. Wilson and, and, and the other guys, I forget their names, created the famous little head on this toy submarine, and they and they, they floated it and out. And then there was, of course, like every good story needs, the deathbed confession. The deathbed confession. Yeah, it was a hoax. The famous, most famous shot is a hoax. But then even when I was reading that, Tom, I thought... 
Well, maybe he just wants some attention on his deathbed. <laughs> God, you really want to believe, don't you? Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> I used to enjoy the X-Files. <laughs> yeah. No, the Loch Ness is pretty def- definitively you can't, un- unless, untrue. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it can't be. It, it can't, can't be. be. It, but, there's just a there's hundred reasons why nothing of that size can be in the lake. It, yes, yeah. But, and, the, but the evidence is just... So compelling. <laughs> well, it's well. I think you do a really a lovely job in here of actually talking about the appearance of being by the lock. Because I have, I was, I was up there. I just didn't get to the the, the exhibition centers right, like right, you right. did. And and that way, like how the water looks or how light is refracting. So where there's and the the mist, like where you think, well, you might be able to see it because if you're hoping hard enough, yeah. You might be able to... It's, it's a haunted place. It really does feel like that. Well, we should mention where this piece appeared, which is the Virginia Quarterly Review. Oh, yes. Um, and you're, are you still a contributing yeah, editor there? Yeah, yeah, I sure am. And, uh, and you can look... It's not in any of my books. You can, it's, it's, it's only on the internet. The webnet, as I call it. Yeah, there's actually a really nice site that collects some of your, your pieces. Byliner. Is it long... Oh, long form too, yeah. Yeah. yeah, long form too. And so that's actually so you could check out long form to find Nessie, the last lion, um, the Jim Harrison piece that we we mentioned. So so you like the memoir, like because the Loch Ness memoir. <laughs> yeah, well, I like writing about other things through the prism of myself, you know. Um, but just like a straight up memoir, I don't think I could quite do. I just don't think, frankly, I'm all that compelling enough to withstand someone's interest for that long but so I've written a lot about myself but it's usually through some other occasion you know um I mean don't get me wrong there's tons of memoirs whose work that I love but I I just yeah it's not really what I do with the writing so are you um always working on many projects because now I know your job job is the video games like writing the narrative for the new do you know the name of the game or you can't, I can't say, say it? Yeah. okay this is very secretive it's just like it's a messy. very weird industry yeah. no, <laughs> well but, i mean it's probably you have to it's you have to protect like the ideas and these are publicly traded companies whose announced projects are will, like cause serious fluctuation in the company's perceived value so they 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 time the releases of their announcements of these games pretty scientifically so that, that's that's why that's why it's a secret and i understand that you know when you think of it in those terms that if you know the public knows that company a has game x coming out mm. that changes have... their value mm. um so that's why they keep that information to themselves but back to the writing yes <laughs> so you're also a contributing editor though at vqr and and still also harper's, harper's. Yeah. okay and so you're so you're still then are you going on these adventures where you're i don't writing? do so much travel writing anymore but i've been working on a travel book for a long time which is a two uh, i just finished the first draft which eight it took me eight years to write it and it's um a book about the tombs of the 12 apostles i went to all of their tombs yeah, that's a great idea. It's a good idea, right? Uh, I just keep waiting for someone to beat me to the punch. But oh no, it's... should we have not said anything? Oh shit! I don't, I've, so it's, it's it's already out there. It's man. out there. It's okay. out there. Okay. So um, I'm typically a person who just works on one thing at a time. And the last three or four years, I've been someone working on like five different things at a time. And I really can't wait for this part of my life to be over because I just need to go back to just working on one thing at a time. I'm. Uh, it's it's worn me down. I have a lot more gray hair, uh, I think you can see, than I did four years <laughs> ago. He doesn't have much this, gray hair, you guys. This, yeah. I have a ton of gray hair. 
And it's because your your psyche is in five parts or so. Yeah, man. I mean, it's it's just too much work for me to handle. The brain in the brain. I'm a one project at a time kind of kind of guy. Well, you seem pretty intense. Like when you get in a project, it seems like yeah, that's what you're inhabiting. That's what I'm inhabiting. So and and just dividing yourself into so many different things is not great. So it's good right now. Everything's great. I'm very busy, but um, these are not problems. They're just these are not problems to have. I'm super lucky actually, but. But um, just in terms of like emotional wear and tear, it really, really wears you down. Well, well, let's talk again once this the the twelve apostles. Yeah, that book should be relatively out. soon. If, would, if I can cut this thing down, that would be great. Yeah, um, and with Loch Ness, it was funny because you you were really you're passionate about this the idea of the belief mm-hmm. in Nessie. Um, can you say like is that? I don't know. Is that how you also feel about writing? Because like, what, what do you think made you doggedly believe? Like, I guess you said you had Jim Harrison as as a mentor and Philip Caputo. Yeah, I think uh, I love stories. Stories are how we make sense of ourselves. Um, the story is the imposition of logic on a chaotic universe. I think we said that before we started. And without that logic, I think we're all just flailing, desperate, lonely, miserable people. So. Stories help us keep track of ourselves, of our cultures, of our world. Whether the stories are fiction or nonfiction makes no difference to me. I, I, the imposition of dramatic meaning on a random series of events, I never get sick of it. To me, that's the whole point of being alive. And um, Like having a belief. Having a in belief something. in something. And my belief is in the transformative power of storytelling. And everything we tell ourselves after the fact is always an artfully edited version of the truth, right? It's a story. It's a story. And a story does not exist in the world. There's no such thing. What is today's story? Where did it begin and end? There isn't one, you know? A person who decides comes along and imposes beginnings, middles, and endings on things. And what happens to real events when you do that to them is to me the most magical and beautiful thing in the world. It's It's the only meaning that I believe in. It's the meaning of the imagination. I think that'll hold you in good stead. <laughs> I hope so. And I still wish the Loch Ness Monster were real, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Good night, everybody. <laughs> me, me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, some things. But you know what's real, though, is like everyone wanting to believe. That's real. Yeah. And what is that, what that's about, I don't know. Um, I think it's a failure of the imagination. Like when very religious people ask non-religious people, like, how do you know not to hurt people and do whatever you want if you don't believe in cosmic punishment? And it's because, well, because I have the imagination to be able to imagine how miserable that would make me and everyone. And, you know, I have the imagination to put myself in another person's shoes and say, gosh, I wouldn't want someone to do that to me. Or someone and I love. Or, someone yeah. I love. I'd, I, you have the imagination to enter into the social construct in a felt and real way. And that's an imaginative step that you take empathy is an act of imagination and people who don't have that have this very literalist view of good and bad and again we come back to stories and imagination and and um all truly awful people have one thing in common they lack imagination some truly awful people have had imagination true but but the kinds of people that are unable to imagine what others feel like as often as not are as 
are guilty of really terrible things. I don't think that's a coincidence. Well, thank goodness for writers then and imagining. We are the most important people who ever lived. <laughs> Yay. Uh, no, no. I don't mean just writers. I mean anybody. I mean readers too. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I don't mean just art, artsy fartsy people because God help us if they were in charge of everything, the world would be so, a catastrophe. Yes. Yes. Um, you don't have a bit to have hard any, to bear. <laughs> imagination is not something that you go to grad school to learn. Imagination is something we're all born with, and it's something we all have, right? So please, listeners, do not think that I'm pleading for some English department vision of the world here. I'm not. Imagination is something that we all have, and many of us forget we have. Yeah. Viva imagination. Yes. Thanks, Tom Bissell. Thank you. Thanks for being on the program Thank today. Thank you, T. I appreciate it. And. Um, we've been we've been talking about the disaster artist, my life inside the room, the greatest bad movie ever made, um, soon to be out, hot off the press. Also, extra lives, why video games matter, and God lives in Saint Petersburg, um, the short story collection. Thanks again, Tom Bissell. Thank you. Thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to Greg Greg for engineering. I'm T Hetzel. Until next time.